Hebrews chapter 10. Please turn there in your Bibles. As we have been looking at Hebrews for a while now, we are reaching this part in the middle where addressing Jewish believers in the first decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who are being frightened by persecution and the difficulty of faithfully following Jesus. And many of them are falling back, turning away, and returning to the, uh, the lifestyle they knew before. Obeying God, following God, seeking after God through the, the Old Testament system of tabernacle and sacrifice and priesthood. Because there was no persecution for that. And it still felt right. It's what God had given and, and called his people to do. And the author of Hebrews responds and says, no, don't do that. And for, for several chapters now has been looking at the, the temple and the priests and the sacrificial systems through the lens of how Jesus has fulfilled and completed what they were designed to do and to teach. And we continue in that this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, you have, a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. If I were to ask this audience, in particular this congregation, why did Jesus have to die? I would hope, I would imagine and expect that most of you would be able to put together a rather clear answer to that. That Jesus died to pay the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and brought near to God and made a child of God. But if I were then to ask the question, okay, but why did Jesus have to live? That's a very different sort of question, isn't it? It's not one we're maybe used to hearing. 
We talk a lot about why Jesus died for your sins. How often do we talk about why Jesus lived? Not only that, why he had to live. Why was it necessary for him to live the life that he lived? If all we needed was for someone, for Jesus in particular, to die for our sins, then we have a lot of wasted words in the Bible. And Jesus spent a lot of unnecessary time walking the earth when he could have just walked straight to the cross. Oh, but he needed to teach us. Well, why? Why does he even need to teach us anything or instruct us in anything if all we need was his death? Why did Jesus have to live? It's right to emphasize the death of Jesus, and it is true that his death is enough to save us, but as we see throughout Scripture and as these verses today will show us, God has in store and in mind for his children something more than forgiveness. Verse 1, we see, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. That phrase, make perfect, is part of a cluster of words we're going to see that, that all point to the same thing, to have sins taken away, to have sins removed, to be made right, to be made righteous, to make perfect. The word perfect in, in the Greek that the author of Hebrews was using, it, it actually has two meanings, two related but not the same meanings. One, the way we often use it when we say perfect, you are without flaw. There's no, nothing wrong with it at all. It's error-free. It's clean. It's perfect. But there's another meaning of that word perfect that's being used here, which is complete, fulfilled, mature, to the point that it needs to be at. You know, my son, made, he, he baked some cookies yesterday, and he mixed all the ingredients together. Nothing was lacking, but it was still a lump of dough. There was nothing missing. There was nothing wrong put in it that affected the flavor or anything, but it wasn't perfect, right? Because it hadn't been put in the oven yet and brought to the point that it is meant to be at. There's two ways to understand perfect, flawless and complete. Now, which one is the author of Hebrews using when he says that, that we need to be made perfect, that God's plan is to make us perfect? Well, as we're going to see, it's, it's both, really. It's both. The blood of Jesus, when he died in our place, it made us perfect. It made us without sin anymore in the sight of God. Our sins are removed and washed away. But it did not just clear our record and remove our stain. It also, the work of Jesus restored us to what we were meant to be. People made in God's image, showing forth his goodness and his qualities. Jesus did not just die the death that we could not die. He also lived the perfect life that we could not live. And so we're going to see here that through Jesus' perfect obedience, we are made perfect in God's sight. And to make that happen, one of the things we see in this passage is that you need more than forgiveness. If the goal is to make you perfect, then once that goal is accomplished, the work itself is done. But also, if the goal is to make you perfect, until that's accomplished, you're not done. 
That's why in verses 1 and 2, the author says that the law can never, through these sacrifices that are being continually offered every year, can never make perfect the people who draw near. Otherwise, if they were able to make you perfect like we want, they would have ceased to be offered. Their job would have been finished. They would have stopped offering sacrifices because the work was done. Having once been cleansed, the people would no longer have any consciousness of sins. He's saying, look, this whole system of sacrifice for sin, if it was really doing what we needed it to do and what we want it to do, it would have been finished. If the sacrifice actually removed our sin, we wouldn't need it anymore. There would be no more, he says, consciousness of sin, which is literally a sinful conscience. To get to that point where you no longer have a consciousness of sin, an awareness of your sinfulness, you need more than forgiveness. Now consider if you've done something wrong, and I mean like really, really wrong, you know, not just like forget an important date or put too much sugar in somebody's coffee that you were making for them. Like, let's say you, you stole a car and totaled it. And if anybody here has done that, I'm not singling you out. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to think of something bad. Okay, let's say that you stole a car, totaled it, and the person whose car you stole and totaled says to you, I forgive you. I mean, amen, that's great, that's wonderful. But you still have an awareness of that sin. You still have the effects of that sin in you, perhaps legally. Perhaps you were given a ticket or worse. There's medical consequences, financial consequences, problems with your insurance company. There's still the effects of that sin, an awareness of it, a reality of it. Even when you're forgiven, you are not yet perfect. Your slate isn't clean. And that's why you need more than forgiveness. Because what God intends for me and for you is way beyond a clean slate. Forgiveness gets us off the hook. It removes the threat of punishment. But God's plan for us is not just that we would escape punishment. God's plan for us is that we would fulfill our purpose as people made in His image. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that our chief end, our purpose in life, the reason we exist is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Mere forgiveness doesn't get us there. It's, it's a step in that direction, and, and it is a necessary step because of our sin. But forgiveness itself does not make us who we need to be. It does not make us perfect. And so everything we do, even what God has commanded us to do in His Word, with the sacrifices and offerings and the priests and the temple, it, would, it falls short of making us perfect in the sense of complete, who we're meant to be. So verses 3 and 4, the author says that in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin. They can't make us perfect. They can only remind us of the need for it. They point to a need we have and a desire that our hearts pursue to be restored to what we were made for. Being made in the image of God intended to show and declare His goodness. We want to do that. And sin has made that impossible. And so forgiveness is the next step. But you need more than just forgiveness. You need to be made perfect. You need to be complete the way you were intended to be. 
as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered a, a situation we had when we first moved into our house that we're in now. Uh, there was a, an alarm system that had been installed by a previous, several previous residents ago, I think so. And the secrets of that alarm system had not been passed down from generation to generation and from owner to owner. So what we learned very quickly was that every day, every day at 1.50 p.m., it started beeping. Just beep, 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 just chirping, letting us know, hey, you got to come do something. And every day at 1.50 p.m., we would go in and push a button and reset the whole thing. And 24 hours later, it would do it again. And I would come home from picking the kids up at school, it's going off at 1.50 p.m. I'd be taking a nap on Saturday, woken up at 1.50 p.m. It's just every day. The sacrifices were similar. It was just a reset. It, it didn't actually get to the problem. It didn't stop anything. It just pushed a button and said, oh yeah, this is still here. Oh yeah, this is still a problem. Now I said that was a problem we used to have because one time when my wife was out of town for a week and I had the kids... I don't know how I did it, but I pushed the wrong button and I armed the system. And I didn't discover that until I decided to open up a window at 11.50 p.m. and set off the alarm system in the whole house, which one of my kids actually slept through. I don't know how, but it's blaring and just loud. You just beep, beep, beep. And in, in my adrenaline-fueled wisdom, I figured out where the system was housed, where the electricity was coming into the system. It wasn't on that control panel. It was somewhere else entirely. And I ripped it off the wall, and I yanked wires apart, and thank the Lord I was not you know, electrocuted in the process. But you know what? It stopped. And at 1.50 the next day, it was silent, and it never beeped again. Okay, I, I tell that story to, to give you the idea that what Jesus did was he didn't just go and hit reset. He disconnected sin from its power source. He did something that all those sacrifices could never do. They could point to, they could promise, they could give you some idea of, but they couldn't actually do it. Jesus disconnected from the power source. The power of sin. And therefore, all the commands and all the instructions and rules and laws that you read in Scripture need to be viewed in that light. Let me explain. They're not meant to be a path to salvation. They're not another attempt to press the button and put off and delay the problem further. No. All the commands of Scripture are not about how to be forgiven. They're about how to live because you're forgiven. Have you considered that? I know many of us raised, even raised in the church, have, have gotten that wrong for, for years. We look at what God tells us to do, and we carry, we take up this heavy burden of this is how I will be forgiven. When rather it is, this is how you live because you are forgiven, child of God. Forgiven people forgive others. People who have received grace show grace. People whose needs have been met are able to meet the needs of others instead of seeking ways to meet their own needs. People who are served by their king become people who serve others. People who no longer need to prove or find their worth are no longer controlled and enslaved by the opinions and intimidations and temptations of the things of this world. 
You need more than forgiveness to be like that. Now remember the question I started us off with a few minutes ago, why did Jesus have to live? I asked that question to show that though we do indeed need the death of Jesus in order to be forgiven, since we need more than forgiveness, we need more than the death of Jesus. Okay. Hang tight. I promise I'm not starting a new heresy here. Okay. Hold off on that angry email to the session. We need more than the death of Jesus. Follow here um, in Psalm, or sorry, in verses 5 through 7, quoting Psalm 40. The author says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author is quoting a psalm of David, but he's putting the words in Christ's mouth. And what he's doing is showing there's a distinction to be made between the sacrifices that God required and actually doing God's will. And if you're going to one of the Sunday community groups today, there's going to be a question on this. Because the prophets saw this again and again. The people of Israel, the people of Judah would say, oh, but we are, we're making all the right sacrifices. Every day we're making sacrifices. We're celebrating the right festivals. We're doing everything God wants of us. Listen to our music. Listen to our songs. Look at how we are doing the things that God has told us to do. The sacrifices, the offerings. And God says through the prophets, that is offensive to me that you are doing these things I told you to do. Because while you're doing these things, you are neglecting other things. You're not doing my will. You're doing some of my will, sure. But there's way more to it than you realize. And the point is that, that merely going through the motions and giving God some of the things that he has, uh, that you believe he's asking for. You know, I show up one day out of seven. I, I give 10%. I even put a fish on my bumper. I mean, I'm doing everything God could want of me. And God says, no, let me look at the rest of your life. Are you really doing my will? And no amount of religious activity and spiritual behavior can make up for a lack of obedience. And so in looking at the psalm, he says, uh, it, it says that the, the life of Jesus was about more than just being a time of heading towards the cross. There was more to it than that. Yes, he was the perfect and final sacrifice. We've looked at that in the past several chapters. But the life of Jesus was about more than him being the final perfect sacrifice that God required. It was about Jesus fully doing the will of God in your place. So look at verses 8 and 9. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he adds, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the sacrifices and offerings, in order to establish the second, doing the will of God. Doing God's will does away with the sacrifices because in doing God's will, Jesus does what no sacrifice could ever do. The sacrifices pointed to it and showed it and taught about it, but did not accomplish it because the sacrifices were all about substitution. And when an animal was brought forth for sacrifice, the priest was called to put his hands on the animal, transferring symbolically the sin of the people onto the animal, but in return... Something had to come back to the people, which is why the, the animal sacrifices that God's people offered had to be a perfect 
animal. Perfect in the first sense of flawless, without spots, without deformities, without disabilities, without wounds, without anything wrong with it. It had to be a perfect animal. Because the people were trading their sin, their sinful life, for a life without sin. And it was a symbol of perfection being given to the people. Your sin goes on the animal, its innocence becomes yours, its purity becomes yours. Not in reality, in a symbol, but it pointed to the way that God would finally do that in reality, in Jesus. Not by us doing God's will, but by Jesus doing God's will. So look at verse 9. It says, Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will. So because we need more than forgiveness, we need more than the death of Jesus, we need the life of Jesus as well. We need His perfect obedience. We need Him to perfectly fulfill and keep the law of God because we can't. So that we would not only be counted as forgiven by His death, but also be counted as righteous, perfectly clean, perfectly obedient because of the life of Christ. If you stick around here long enough, you're going to hear this illustration at least once a year. I would do it almost every week if I felt it would help. But it, it, it's the way that I came to understand um, why this matters. If you picture yourself having to take a test, a written test upon which your eternity is based, and you get that test and you look at it, and, and anybody who's been through school has had this experience at some point or another where you look at the test and you're like, I think this is the wrong test because I don't recognize any of these words. I, I, I don't know if I was even in this class. I certainly didn't read the textbook. I don't know any of this. And you, you could try to make stuff up and try to fill things in, but unless you get 100, you're going to fail. But at the same time, at the seat next to you, Jesus is going out and filling out the test, just zipping through page after page, getting every question right. He's so confident. He's got it perfect. He knows what he's doing. And when the time comes to turn in your tests, you both go forward. And just before you hand him in, Jesus grabs your paper, puts it in front of him and writes his name on it and hands it in, taking the penalty of your failure. That's how I saw salvation. And that's half of it. Because that's being saved by the death of Jesus. He takes the penalty of my sin. But the rest of the story is he takes that perfect paper that he's filled out, writes your name on it, and turns it in. You get his perfect righteousness and the reward of that. He gets your failure and the penalty of that. It's the great exchange described in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made Jesus, he, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is not half of that equation. Jesus becomes sin for us. The gospel is the whole thing. He becomes sin. We become righteous. The fancy word for that is that we get imputed righteousness. Jesus doesn't just die in our place. He also lives a perfect life in our place. He faithfully lived out in human flesh on earth that, that obedience that is now counted as yours, just as fully as your sin is put on him. Like we sing sometimes, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. 
You don't bring your behavior, your accomplishments, your morality, your success, your righteousness before the throne of God. You will be rejected. You bring his righteousness and his alone. So when the author of Hebrews says in verse 10 that by that will, that will of God that Jesus obeyed, we have been sanctified. We've been made holy. We've been made perfect through the offering of the body, that perfect representative, flawless one of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified is another one of that cluster of words that points to what we're talking about here, being made perfect, holy, right. It's not just forgiven. It's having sin removed from you. And in God's sight, you are just as pure as if all of your sin was fully removed. You are what you were created to be, a pure and holy image of God. Not because you got your act together and lived right, but because Jesus' perfect life is given to you. So in Romans 5, verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, but by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By the obedience of Jesus, you are made righteous. You need more than forgiveness. You need perfection. So you need more than the death of Jesus. You need the perfect obedience of Jesus just as much. The third thing we need to see, you need more than forgiveness and you need more than the death of Jesus, but you also need to see here that you need nothing more, nothing more than what Jesus has done for you. And let me share with you to explain this, my misunderstanding of the gospel that I held for many, many, many years. It was this belief that that my salvation was similar to me uh, drowning far from shore and Jesus shows up and, and throws me a life preserver and pulls me up out of the water and dries me off and then gives me some swimming lessons and throws me back in the water and cheers me on as I swim the rest of the way to shore. That's what I thought my salvation was. Jesus has died and I've confessed my sins and he has forgiven me of everything I've done before. But from here on out, I've got something to do. I've got to finish the work that Jesus started in me. It's my responsibility to get it right from here on out. The work isn't done. My obedience, my clean living, and my faith are necessary to finish the work of becoming perfect. But what the author of Hebrews goes on to explain here is that you need nothing more than what Jesus has done for you. Look at verse 11 through 13. And as I start there, uh, keep the verse up. I want to mention just as a side note, I mentioned this a few weeks ago as well. Um, Note that he's using present tense here to describe what the priests are doing which teaches us that he was writing while the temple was still standing and the priests were still offering sacrifices, which ended in the year 70, which gives us an idea how early this book of the New Testament was being written. It had to have been written in the late 60s, just a a few short decades after the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, with that in mind, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. When you see the description in the Bible of, of the, uh, the temple and, and, and all the furniture in the temple, there's, there's tables, 
There's lampstands, there's basins, there's altars, there's curtains, but there's one piece of furniture that is conspicuously absent, which is a chair. There are no seats in the temple of God because the work of of making sacrifice for sins never ended. The priest was never to sit down because his job wasn't done. So the author of Hebrews makes a, a clear distinction that when Jesus, when this priest finished his sacrifice, he sat down because the work was done. There's nothing more that he needed to add to it. There's nothing more that you need to add to it. Nothing more that you are even able to add to it. It's done. The bill is paid. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. There's nothing more to add. So verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's done. But let's be honest with each other, okay? Are we perfect? Not a trick question. Yes, in God's sight, you are made perfect. Okay, but think over the last 24 hours, the last week, the last month. Would somebody getting an unfiltered view of your life say, yes, that person is perfect. They are perfectly in their words, in their attitudes, in their actions, doing everything God calls them to do and refusing to do what God tells them not to do. Honestly, no. We, we would all, I think, honestly say, no, I'm not perfect. So is God then so delusional that he does not see our sin? Or does he just stop caring about our sin? He sees us as perfect, but he knows that we are not. Not in reality. So what, what then? do we? If Christ has made us perfect, let me ask it this way. If Christ has made us perfect, does that mean that we don't need to change? We don't have to bother. It's already done. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Let's look at verse 14 again. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You have been made perfect. You've been perfected for all time. It's done. It's finished. It's who you are. It's how God sees you. It's how you'll be judged. You are being sanctified. A process still happening. Not done yet. We are becoming in experience what we are in reality. We are becoming in the sight of others what we are in the sight of God. The Bible, to describe this, uses the, the uh, idea of trees and fruit. Okay, God comes upon an apple tree and says, I want you to bear mangoes. Does then an apple tree have to figure out how to make a mango? No, it doesn't work like that. It will only grow mangoes if it is changed into a mango tree. If a transformation is undertaken that changes what it is by nature. And likewise, we who are made perfect in Christ by the grace of God will produce a life consistent with what we now are. Not should. Oh, you should, but maybe you won't. No, if you have been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God and made a child of God and made perfect through the work of Christ Jesus, you will produce fruit in keeping with that transformation. You will grow in sanctification. You will become more and more perfect in reality, just as you are in the eyes of God. Verses 15 through 17, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. For after saying, and here he's quoting the prophecy of Jeremiah that we looked at in previous chapters. 
After saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So God has put our sins away. He will remember them no more. And he puts his law on our hearts. That's a poetic way of saying that he changes the very way that we feel and think and desire and live. He changes an apple tree into a mango tree that now is able to bear mangoes. The Holy Spirit describes it this way through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh in order that they may walk according to my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people. I will be their God. How does God put his law on our hearts though? How does he actually change our hearts? He does it by dwelling in us, giving us new desires, giving us greater ability. When we teach children about believing in Jesus, we say, oh, you have Jesus in your heart. Well, that's not just a, a silly childish way of talking. That's the way Jesus describes it. He says, if anyone believes in me, I will, I will come to him and my father will come to him and we will dwell in him and make our home with them. The spirit that I give him will live within him. The Spirit of God lives in all of His children, as we said in our confession of faith this morning. And I would refer you back to it. You can check the worship guide. Everyone that God has saved is given the Holy Spirit that makes them able to obey. Philippians 2 describes it this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, Obey, become, do the work of becoming perfect because for it's God who's at work inside of you to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's an important connection. It's not obey and I'll change your heart. It's not God saying, follow my ways, do what I tell you, and I'll make you clean. It's, it's the other way around. God says, I've changed your heart, so now you can obey. You couldn't do it before. I've removed your sin. Now you can follow my ways. Verse 18 says, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Remember my swimming illustration? You know, I, I've believed for many years that I, through my own effort, had to keep making an offering for my sin. With the way I lived, with the sincerity I felt, I was living as if I needed more than what Jesus had already done. Don't live in pursuit of forgiveness. Live in celebration of forgiveness. Joyfully serving God does not cause you to be forgiven. Joyfully serving God shows that you have been forgiven, as Paul describes in Philippians 3. In speaking of perfect in the sense of without flaw, without error, he says, I haven't already obtained all this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm striving and working and trying to look more perfect because I've already been made perfect by God. Brothers, I don't consider that I've already made it my own. It hasn't, hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's not done yet. It's still a process. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, people of God, we live, I just want to wrap up with this, we live with two glorious truths ever before us. You are perfect. God looks upon you and sees his sinless son's perfect obedience. There's nothing you can or need to do add to that or make it more true dressed in his righteousness alone 
faultless to stand before his throne. That's where you are. But you are still being made holy. You are still striving for it, pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. And rather than be discouraged that you're not yet here where you, where you know you should be and where God has called you to be, let that give you hope. You have assurance that you will continue to grow into the image of God in Jesus Christ because it's not you at work. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so the message of the gospel that you will hear from this pulpit again and again is not obey the law of God because Jesus died for you and you owe him. The message of the gospel is not work harder, Christian, because you're not good enough yet. Now, the message of the gospel is this. What we mean when we say living out the gospel together is this, that Christ has done everything you need. Christ has done everything you need. There's nothing more for you to do. And because of that, his Holy Spirit is in you, is at work in you, and is changing you day by day. Therefore, you have the ability to do whatever he calls you to do. Whatever obedience, whatever transformation, whatever perfection is still ahead of you, you are able to attain it because the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you. Not because of you, but Christ in you. That is your assurance, that is your hope, that is your joy. Let us pray in light of that. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for making us perfect in Christ Jesus. Thank you for doing all that needed to be done. Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for Christ who fulfilled your will when we could not. Thank you for your spirit that makes us able to grow in grace, to stir up the grace of God that is within us, and to make us more and more in the image of Christ that you already see in us because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to be faithful in living out these things, not because of us, but Christ in us, who cannot fail. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.